0: Well, good morning, Faith Church. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, As Brent said earlier, uh, my name is Sam Huggard, and I'm the superintendent for the New England district of the Evangelical Free Church, of which uh, this church is a part of. There's about 70 churches across uh, New England that make up our little uh, corner of the Evangelical Globe, and uh, I get the privilege of traveling around and serving those churches uh, encouraging and especially helping with pastoral transition, uh, we've actually had uh, seven churches in New England just last year who are going through the same process that you're going through now. So you're certainly not alone in this process, and uh, it's been happening for a couple thousand years actually. So uh, don't don't be alarmed. Um, I actually live in New Hampshire and the small town of Alton, New Hampshire, on the shores of Lake Winnipesaukee. Anybody heard of uh, Lake Winnipesaukee? Oh okay a number of you usually I have to introduce uh people to where I live by asking if anyone has seen the movie what about bob and then people know where lake Winnipesaukee is I'm glad you guys know uh I have a wife Wendy uh and three teenage children 19 17 and 15 and I came up last night after seeing my two oldest girls off to their their junior and senior prom and so life is a whirlwind in our home right now and it's a, it's a good time uh, but I am really glad to be here, uh, especially during this season of life for you as a church. Because I'm convinced of this, that God never brings along a change that he doesn't know full well how to use. And so so often during changes, those are the times where God really brings out good and uh, good opportunities for growth. And so I'm really excited about what God is already doing and what he will do in the season ahead. Now, I asked Bill uh, for a little advice before I spoke to you. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I talked to him, and I said, tell me what uh, your worship gatherings are like, what should I know about? He said, well, first of all, the 8.30, they're, they're really the alive crowd, all right? Now, I'll also say that to the next one, but uh, then he also said, to keep them awake, about halfway through the sermon, I start uh, making, taking $10 bills and folding them into paper airplanes and throwing them out. And for a second, he said it so seriously, I kind of wondered. But that didn't sound like Bill at all. So, unless you're telling me he did that, I'm not going to. Well, I'm going to be here for the next, uh, couple Sundays. And the reason I've been asked to come and speak to you is to kind of give a a larger perspective, an outside perspective on the transition process. And we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, the first couple chapters. And what we're going to see here is that leader transition has been taking place for all of church history. And we can learn from churches in the past. And I want us to consider this question. What unifies a church during pastoral transition? What unifies a church during pastoral transition? And this week, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 10 to 31, you can turn there if you have a Bible. And what we're going to see is that foundationally what unifies a church during pastoral transition is the message of the cross. And we just celebrated this in communion, and I don't want us to take it for granted. And I fear too often we do. that. It is the message of the cross that is our foundation and it is the primary source of our unity. And we're going to explore that this morning. Before I jump in, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful uh, that we serve a God who is sovereign. There is nothing that happens in your world that you are not keenly aware of and is not part of your sovereign purpose and plan. So God, we come to you now knowing that everything that's going to happen in the days ahead, you already know full well for this church. We also thank you for your promise that you promised to be with your church to the end of the age. So you don't only know the plans you have, you're right here guiding this church. So God, I pray this morning uh, that you would uh, open minds and hearts to your word, to your truth, but also uh, to your spirit, that we may be guided in wisdom. So God, I pray that you would conform us more to your likeness this morning by your word and by your spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 10 through 17 right now, and then we will do verses 18 through 31 in a little bit. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's stop there. At the beginning of uh, this book of the Bible, this letter to the Corinthian church, uh, Paul, who was the founder of this church, is writing back to the church to address some issues. And the first issue he addresses in the Corinthian church is the issue of division based on leadership preferences. Right at the beginning, I appeal to you, my brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. And then he goes on to identify what they are divided over. Now, he identifies four different groups in this church. There may have been more. This may be just representative, but four different groups in this church who kind of found their connection with differing leaders that had been part of this church's history. Let's dig in a little to each of these groups, because the scriptures give us some insight as to kind of what made up um, the the characteristics of each of these leaders. And I think we can see what these people appreciated about each, each leader. Group number one that Paul identifies is the group that said, well, I follow Paul. Now, uh, for some in this group, their connection with Paul was probably based on the fact that Paul was the founder of this church. Now, Paul had come to the city of Corinth, and he first preached in the synagogue, and his message was not received well. And so he moved next door to the synagogue to the household of Titius Justus. And the whole household became believers. And then many more became believers. And I'm sure there's many who were there in the early days of this young church who remember how exciting it was when this church was just beginning. And they were saved under Paul's preaching. And so they feel this great relational connectedness to Paul. Matter of fact, later um, in uh, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 15, Paul actually tells them kind of about this relationship. He says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He has this almost fatherly relationship to this church because so many people there came to Christ through his teaching. And so I'm sure many in the church thought, man, uh, Paul was great and we will never feel the same about anybody else as we did with Paul. And I'm sure many there also felt really connected to him because he was a wise teacher. If you read his writings, uh, Paul was a brilliant man. Uh, He was a very educated man. The scriptures tell us that he was a Pharisee before coming to Christ, and his Jewish studies were under the chief Jewish instructor, Gamaliel. Paul knew several languages. He wrote uh, the majority of the New Testament letters. Uh, when he was on trial before uh, the Roman governor Festus, the governor said to him, Paul, you're out of your mind because your great learning has driven you mad. So Paul's so smart, they thought he was crazy. So Paul has a very strong intellect. And I'm sure there were many in that church that felt, man, we just appreciate this style of teaching. He's like the Tim Keller, Ravi Zacharias of his day. And people resonated with that, or some people did. That's group one. Group two in this church says, I follow Apollos. I follow Apollos. Now, we know less about Apollos than we do Paul, but the scriptures give us insight into him as well. That when Paul left Corinth after about a year and a half of ministry to that church, he left with Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, they hooked up with Apollos. Now, Apollos was a Jewish man who, had, uh, who was from Alexandria in Egypt. And it said he knew the scriptures well, was a great teacher, but he didn't have full understanding yet of the spirit and how God was working through the spirit in the church. And Priscilla and Aquila um, taught him further. Now, Acts 18, verses 24 through 25, describes Apollos this way. It says, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John at that time. See what it says there about Apollos. He was an eloquent man. He spoke well. So there was no sense of awkwardness while he was speaking. People wanted to hear from him. He was competent in the scriptures. He was a student of the word, knew it well. Uh, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He understood discipleship and being fervent in spirit. He was not a boring speaker. He was passionate in how he spoke. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Apollos is a great Bible teacher. People say, man, he's a man of the word. I have learned so much under him. Now you compare that description of Apollos' teaching with what Paul said of himself In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, here's how Paul describes his teaching. He says, And when I, when I came to you brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. How's that for a a speaker resume. Let's listen to this guy. He's weak and he trembles a lot. You compare that with Apollos and you see that when you compare the two, Apollos presented as the more powerful preacher. And some people really tracked with Apollos and his preaching style. Now, group number three was I follow Cephas, Cephas being Peter. Now, uh, after uh uh, Paul started the church, and Apollos came at some point in their history. Peter also visited this church and ministered to the church. It seems he also brought his wife along with him. Paul refers to later. Now, some group, the uh, group three, probably tracked more with Peter because of his pedigree. Um, now we think of Paul as being the big guy. I mean, we know his writings. We have we have the scriptures. And so we think of Paul as being the significant name in the early church, but that was not the case back then. Paul was the outsider. He was the guy on the periphery. Peter was one of the 12, one of the leaders of the 12. He had been with Jesus. And so Peter is the larger name in that day. And so some probably connected with Peter simply because they thought, you know, he's a little more important. Others may have connected with his personality. We know Peter to be a, an impulsive, spontaneous kind of guy. And Paul is more deliberate and thoughtful. And people may have liked Peter's freewheeling style. And so they connected with him. You know, maybe it was Peter's teaching. When you go to First and Second Peter, you see how um, straight up applicational it is. I mean, Peter's kind of a plain guy. A, I would say almost like a blue-collar kind of guy. He just puts it out there. Here's what you should do. And Peter even says at the end of 1 Peter, referencing Paul's teaching, that guy Paul is kind of hard to understand. So clearly, Peter's teaching is, is more on the level for the ordinary guy. And some people track with Peter. Then you have group four, who says, I follow Christ. Now, on one hand, that is the correct theological answer. Uh, we are to follow Christ because all human leaders are to point to him. So this is the correct theological answer. But the way Paul lists this group, it's one of the sources of division. It's right in the list of the groups that are dividing. So he's not commending this group. He's saying there's division based on this group, which is humbling to realize that correct theology doesn't necessarily cause us to live maturely. They were still living divided even though they had the right answer. Sometimes it's the people who have the correct theology that can be the most self-righteous. Which is why Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have all understanding and all knowledge, but without love, the right answers are nothing. So we see these four groups that are at play in the Corinthian church and they're divided among themselves. God has used these first three leaders to point to Jesus Christ, and yet we see great divisions in the church based on people's personal preferences of a human leader. And the first thing I want us to recognize is simply this, that we are all prone to division based on our personal preferences of and connection to different leaders. It's just human nature. We're wired differently, and we all connect differently with different Leaders, And it's not wrong to have personal preferences and differing connections. That's not wrong. What is wrong is for division to be the result of those preferences. And so Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to agree, to be of the same mind, the same heart, rather than divided based on these leaders. Now, the second thing I want us to realize is that Divisions within the church are always the result of spiritual immaturity. Divisions within the church are always the result of spiritual immaturity. Now we don't see this in chapter one. We actually see it in chapter three. See, Paul finishes uh, chapter one identifying the problem. Then he first then he offers a solution in chapter one and chapter two. Chapter three, he circles back around again to the problem and goes a little deeper into it. So let me read chapter three, verses one through four. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul says, uh, based on the divisions I see in the church, I see an immaturity. He says, first of all, he recognizes that you're acting as people of the flesh. That's the phrase there, people of the flesh. Now, that word flesh is used in a lot of different ways in the scriptures. It can refer to our actual bodies. Uh, it can refer to a uh, uh, sinful, unredeemed human nature, which is how Paul is using it here. He's saying, it, you're acting as though you are not redeemed, though you are. So he's not saying they're not Christians. He's saying you are Christians, but you're acting as if you are not Christians, as if your nature has not been infused by the Holy Spirit. So you, the Spirit is resident within these people, but is not yet guiding all of their actions. So he says, you're acting as though you're people of the flesh. And then he takes it a step further and he says, as infants. Basically, Paul's calling them babies. (laughs) He says, you're acting like babies. Now, my youngest of my three children, Seth, uh, he turned 15 just last week. And being my youngest, I was feeling a little nostalgic. I started looking at old family photos. And I looked at my son when he was one on his first birthday and saw him, you know, covered in birthday cake. How cute it was. He was trying to feed himself and he couldn't even hit his mouth, you know. And when he was one, we loved taking pictures of him doing things like that. I appreciated those those infant-like foibles. I remember when he was one, you know, he's still waking up at night sometimes, crying when he's hungry so I could feed him. When he needs to be changed, crying so he can be changed. See, for an infant, life resolves around their own personal wants and needs. And that's okay. They're infants. But for a teenager or then adult to act as though life revolved around their own personal wants and needs, that would be a problem. And so Paul is writing to the Corinthians and saying, you shouldn't be acting like infants anymore. When you first came to Christ, I understand you're, you're young, you're learning about how to follow Jesus. But by this point, life should not resolve around your personal preferences. And so he's referring to them as infants, not as mature people. See, maturity in the faith has less to do with the amount of knowledge we have and more to do with how we live our lives for God and for others. That life is no longer just about our own personal preferences, our own wants and needs. It is the Holy Spirit now that is motivating our relating and our acting. And Paul says, based on what I'm seeing, that's not the case. So Paul identifies the problem at the beginning of chapter 1 here. Thankfully, he quickly goes to a solution. And here's where I want to camp out today for just the remainder of our time. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, Paul's addressed the division, and this is the solution he goes to. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? after addressing the issue being division based on personal preferences of leaders, then points to this one unifying factor. He calls it the word of the cross. He holds up the word of the cross, the message of Jesus crucifixion on our behalf as the solution to their division. And what I want to first notice is this, that the word of the cross is not just how we become Christians It's how we grow up as Christians as well. We don't move past the message of the cross, which I fear too often we treat the cross as merely the door to get in. But Paul's saying it's not just the door into the kingdom. This is how we live in the kingdom. Now, I think this was part of the Corinthians issue. There are other worldly values that are actually influencing their current behavior. Now, they are Christians. He's not writing to people who have rejected the faith. He's not writing to people who aren't coming to church. These are people who are actively part of the church community, but their lives are more shaped by the world than they are the message of the cross. So he's writing to tell them, let the message of Christ form every aspect of your personal and corporate lives together. So what is it about the message of the cross that is so important And that so unifies us. Two things. Firstly, the message of the cross reveals the true nature of this world's problems and we're all implicated. The cross reveals the true nature and the true severity of the problem we all face in life. You know, isn't it interesting that anyone you talk to on the street will agree that our world is problems? I have yet to talk to someone who goes, oh no, no, life's perfect. Everyone agrees our world's messed up. We all just disagree as to the nature and the solution of the problem. Now, Paul references two groups in his culture and their influence had come into the church as well, who had a different perspective on the nature of the world's problem. He references the Jew and the Greek. And both of them considered the message of the cross foolish or scandalous because of their perspective. You see, the Greek worldview was this. The Greeks were not barbarians. The Greeks were wise, and they were cultured. Matter of fact, Corinth at that day was one of the leading cities. It was wealthy. It had a an 18,000-seat outdoor auditorium, a 3,000-seat concert hall, I mean, they valued culture, performance, wisdom. Lots of the latest people came through, gave performances and lectures. They were all about acquiring wisdom. See, for the Greek mindset, the great problem in life was a lack of wisdom. There were smart people, and those that were, there were those who, haven't, who hadn't yet got it. And so we needed to raise the level of education, and then we can all you know, get along in life and life will be good. It's a wisdom and a culture issue that's the real problem in life. Then there's the Jewish worldview. The Jewish worldview is far more religious. And the Jewish worldview is rooted in God's law revealed in the scriptures. I mean, the Jews were amazing in their ability to study the law, to memorize the law. Now, living the law was the problem. But what the Jews saw as the major problem is the fact that the wrong people had the power. It was the Roman and the Greek governments that were in power in that day, people that did not hold to God's law, people that advocated for another law. And they thought, oh, when will our Messiah come so that the good people can be in power? So Paul says to the Jewish worldview, the message of the crucified Christ is offensive. It's scandalous. How could a crucified Savior who seems powerless on the cross be our source for hope? How could a powerless Messiah be the answer to this world's problems? So we have the Greeks who think the message is foolish. you know How could uh, a poor? Backwoods rabbi have anything to say to us cultured people and Greeks. How could a crucified Messiah offer us any power? Both worldviews do not see the power of the crucified Christ, but the cross reveals that the situation is much more dire than a lack of wisdom or a lack of power. The cross reveals that the reason we have the problems in the world that we do is what the Bible calls sin. That all of us, not just a few people, not just the wrong group, all of us, Romans tells us, have fallen short of God's glory. All of us have sinned. And sin is a willful rejection of our Creator. And we all like to run our own lives. We all like to decide for ourselves what is right and what is good. And we don't really like someone else to tell us how to live. That is sin. See, the way that life was meant to be lived is us under the loving rule and guidance of our creator. And not one of us has wanted to live that way. So the cross tells us the situation in our world is far deeper than we think. And it was addressed through the death of Jesus. I am reminded how deep my sin is when I look at the fact that Jesus had to suffer a gruesome, horrible death because of it. It reminds me of how severe the problem actually is. And we're all unified in the problem. We can't look at somebody else and say, you're the problem. We say, we're the problem. Matter of fact, there was a a famous, might be legendary, I'm not sure, but legendary story where a newspaper had written an article called, What's Wrong With The World Today? And Christian author G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter to the newspaper with these simple words, Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G- G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. See, that response produces humility when we realize we're all part of the problem. That was not the mindset in the Corinthian church. Um, the cross reveals, first of all, the true nature of the problem. But secondly, the cross reveals God's power to save. The cross reveals the true solution, and we can be united in this solution. Now, I'm not going to take time to go uh, fully into this. I hope in the next couple of weeks we'll go a little further. But real quick, let me identify um, how the cross is powerful to unify us. First of all, the cross is the power of God in that it rescues us from the penalty for our sins. There must be a payment for sin. Sin demands a payment and that is not a pleasant message, but it is a true message. It's as if I came to your house and we were watching a ball game together and I got really excited and I accidentally in my excitement threw something and it hit and broke your TV. So don't invite me to your house. All right. If that happened, if there was going to be a solution, it's not enough for me to say, I'll try better next time. You still have a broken TV. There's got to be a payment. Someone's got to pay for the situation to be resolved. It could be me. It could be you. But someone's got to pay. And sin demands a payment. If this earth is going to be what it's supposed to be, there's got to be a payment. And none of us can pay it. Jesus and Jesus alone is the payment for our sin. And we're unified and he takes the penalty for all our sin. So I can't look at your sin and say it's worse than mine. Jesus paid for mine, not for yours. He paid for all our sin. There's unity in that. Secondly, the cross of Christ is powerful in that it breaks the power of sin. Sin is not just a mistake we made. It's a power that enslaves us. And if we're going to live different and live unified, we need that power to be broken. And that's what Jesus did in the cross. The record of our sin was nailed to Jesus' cross, and its power to condemn us and enslave us died on Jesus' cross. And those who put their faith in Jesus can live differently, can live new lives free from the power of sin. Now, we're not yet perfect, but sin's power is broken for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. There's unity in that I didn't do it in my strength, you didn't do it in your strength. Jesus gave his strength to us. Thirdly, the cross is the power of God in that it gives us a new pattern for life. See, the sinful way of life is I live based on what I think is right, For my pleasure. That's how we all live. Here's what I think is right and good. And I want it my way right now. The cross says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. That real life, true life is about laying yourself down for God's glory and others good. And the cross gives us a new pattern to life. And it's actually the best way to live. So the cross calls us to this new way of life. And then lastly, the cross is the power of God in that it guarantees that the presence of sin will one day be removed forever. If God was willing to send his own son to suffer that gruesome of a death, he didn't do it so that it would fail. He came so that we would be saved and one day, one day, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That one day this world will not be broken as it is now. So Jesus' death was not ineffectual. It was not in vain. The cross is the guarantee of that. See, we can have unity in the message of the cross. Matter of fact, it's the only real source for our unity together, that we're unified in our common contribution to the problem of our world, and we can be unified in Jesus' solution of that problem. Now, in the days ahead, you're going to ask a lot of specific questions uh, about pastors and leadership and how you guys should walk into the next season ahead in terms of leadership. What I want to encourage you right now, though, is the most important questions you could be asking at this point are not about your future pastor. The most important questions you could be asking are about your current church. Are you grounded in the message of the cross? Are you growing in the message of the cross? Is the message of the cross forming your lives to such a degree that there is unity even among people that have different convictions and different leadership preferences? The message of the cross causes that kind of maturity. You say, I don't agree with you, but I love you. And God's got this. So let's walk into the future together. That's what I'm praying for you as a church. And I'm looking forward to the next couple of weeks together. Why don't you stand with me? I'm gonna close in prayer. Lord, I am so thankful for what you have done in this church. I am grateful for Pastor Bill, for his years of ministry, how he faithfully preached the word, how he loved you, loved others, made disciples. God, there is a foundation here that is rich and solid, and for that I am so thankful. Lord, I'm thankful for the good reports I'm hearing from elders and staff on how this church is confident, Lord, in uh, in the message of the cross. God, I know this, that is the hope of this church, God, I pray that you would continue to form this church even more by the message of the cross. God, we pray against the purposes of the evil one who seeks to divide and to destroy. God, I pray that this church would be unified. They would be of one mind. God, they would together discern your will as you are calling this church into the next season. God, I pray that you would continue to form both individuals in this church together uh, that they would be formed together into the nature of of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much, Lord, that you've come for us, that you have addressed our deepest problem in your cross. And God, I pray, I pray that we would never lose sight of just how wonderful and how costly a solution that is. So Lord, I pray now you would bless us and you would keep us in the week ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God's best to you all, have a great week.